Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Identity politics and charges of racism and white privilege pose an existential threat to the American experiment and risk tearing the country apart. And what is stunning and hurtful to many of us is that these explosive charges seem to float free from reality. So I was thrilled to find that Charles Murray, one of America's greatest social scientists, has now weighed in on this with his latest book, Facing Reality, Two Truths About Race in America. In it, he argues that we must confront genuine race differences while at the same time defending our nation's historic commitment to a melting pot and the goal of colorblindness. We cannot have a government that plays racial favorites and dispenses favors and penalties according to the identity groups that government assigns to Americans. Charles Murray, a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, which is where I first got to know him, right. burst into prominence in 1984 with the publication of Losing Ground, which was followed by The Bell Curve in 1994 and Coming Apart in 2012. Uh, as you can see from my mini bookcase on the table here, I own and have read most all of Charles' books, and I consider Charles to be a great American. Charles, thrilled you're here. Well, it's delighted, delightful to have a chance to get together with you. When I started doing this show, I don't know, three, four years ago, I had like a dream guest list, and you were like at the top of it. So I'm glad we finally have yeah. you here. <laughs> um, Facing Reality, Two Truths About Race in America, uh, by Charles Murray, co-author of The Bell Curve, and they're interrelated. So yeah. why did you write the book? Well, I wasn't supposed to be writing any more books. I was supposedly done with all of this. And then last uh, July, when there were the protests and the riots, and then the reaction is what stunned me, because there were all these accusations of, of America being systemically racist, and they were picked up uncritically by the New York Times and the Washington Post and the major networks. And what surprised me and dismayed me was that these major outlets did not say anything about, well, this is complicated. You know, we still have racism in America. I don't deny that. Uh, it's still a factor in American life. But there are also uh, other reasons besides racism that we continue to have disparities. And so I finally decided somebody has to say this. If, if they are going to ignore uh, this kind of evidence and instead say, yes, 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 we're systemically racist, Somebody has to push back. So the pushback that you've, is, you're doing it based on research, a lot of the research you did for the bell curve. And, you know, when I call you a social scientist, I want to underline the scientist part of it. I mean, you, you're, you do extensive data analysis over and over and over again to make sure you get this uh, yeah, exactly I, right. And, Bill, I want, I want people watching to know, for one thing, all of the raw databases I used for the... Uh, work in the book, the text in the book, are, are downloadable. Uh, Encounter Books, which is the publisher for the book, has a website and they have a page for this book and you go to that page, you click on them and you 
feed these into your Excel or statistical analysis program. If you don't like my conclusions, go ahead and take a look at the data and tell me how you see it differently. So the, the, the two differences, the two facts, the uh, two truths are? The first is that there is a large difference between criminal offenses, violent offenses, among blacks and among whites. This has all sorts of effects on the functioning of cities, but it especially has effects on policing. So that when police are going into a low-income black neighborhood, uh, they are facing a much more challenging and dangerous environment than when they go out to a white suburb. And being professional police, behaving responsibly, doing the right thing means that they will have to take steps that they don't take in a less challenging environment. They have to worry more about establishing their authority. They have to worry more about taking precautions against uh, threats. They have to call for backup quicker, and a variety of other things which aren't racist. They are being professional. Now, Bill, I am not denying the reality of these videos that have gone viral of a cop shooting a man walking away from him in the back. I am not condoning that. I'm saying it deserves the severest punishment. I'm saying that, that they are very rare, and to tar the police with uh, being racist on the basis of those is doing a disservice to the police. So that's one of them. The difference in violent crime, and I, we can get into the specific numbers later. And the second one is one which, of course, was raised in the bell curve and has been a source of huge controversy, and that is differences in cognitive ability among you know, Latinos and Asians and blacks and whites. And here I want to say to the people watching us, I understand that there are all sorts of issues you may have about does IQ really represent intelligence and this, that, and the other thing. I'm talking about a very simple set of empirical statements. When you administer mental tests, can be IQ tests, they can be SATs, they can be tests of reading and writing and math. You find consistently and have for a long time significant differences among the races. You in turn have relationships between test scores and job performance, between test scores and performance in the classroom. So when you have difference in test scores, that has implications. It has implications down the road for the success of blacks in occupations, the success in, uh, in school, and so forth. Once again, there are ways that you need, there are things you need to keep in mind. We're talking about a difference in means, okay? A difference in means does not sort people into separate bins. Uh, the way I usually put it is that millions of blacks are smarter than millions of whites. That is also an empirically true statement. It is also true that the entire range of ability, from really dumb to really brilliant, is represented among whites, among blacks, amongst Asians, among Latinos, for all four. If we still treated people as individuals, if that was still the ideal for how we dealt with people, none of these differences would cause any problems. They cause a problem in terms of social consequences for large groups, and we can get into detail on that too. So when you talk about the, I mean, you and I were joking, I, I did a lot, of, took a lot of statistics classes, the bell curve, 
What is the the bell curve? That's the normal distribution, and it's a bell-shaped curve. Okay, so it, it looks goes, like it goes a, like this, yep, and it's a bell. Like that, yep. Slope up and you slope down. And yep. So you get half the population one side if it's normal, and half on the other. Right, and but everybody's dispersed across it, so that you know it. It just drives me nuts when I talk about these differences in means, and then somebody will name a brilliant uh, black uh, academician or a brilliant black executive. And they say, well, how can you explain that? <laughs> Easy, because you've got a distribution of, of ability within blacks as well as within whites. Well, you're, you, as you can see from my library here, you're one of my leading authors in my library, but you're ranked by one guy, Tom, Tom Soul. Soul. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, Tom... You know, we who's the black? We, not, happens we to don't be black. say he's one of the great black economists. We just say he's one of the great. He's one of the great economists. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's colorblind. And he, he produces his output just depresses me enormously because <laughs> for years he's ninety years old now. Yeah, but for years and years he was coming out with a book. It felt like every week, but it wasn't. But they were good. They were substantive. They had stuff in them that, uh, yeah, Thomas, incredible. So when we look at the mean, the average. And at the middle of the bell curve, we're saying that the groups operate on different different places on the axis. So you take Asian, European white, Hispanic, black, and you go into a lot of interesting yeah. definitions in the book. And I highly recommend reading the book to understand how uh, careful you were about this. But they, they set at a different mean point. They're, they're overlapping distributions. Okay. So just to envision those bell curves and just the, and, and the way that they overlap each other so that uh, people in each group, it's, it's actually true, for example, that there are Asians that aren't very smart. Mm -hmm. But it's also true that the Asian mean is higher than, than the others, and uh, so that also means proportionally there are way more Asians out at the high end. So the Asian means at the top, they're yeah. what, 106, 108? About 108 in the IQ scoring system. And then? And then whites are around 103, 104. And then? Uh, well, I used a very conservative, not politically conservative, but scientifically conservative estimate, and saying they're about at 91. That may be a little too high, mm -hmm. uh, but I'd rather err on the side of being too sure. high. And similarly, uh, Latinos around 94. So what does it mean in terms of the workplace, in terms of career, in terms of uh, achievement? Uh, let's, let's start with, the, the central problem, which is that we artificially create differences in the universities and the workplaces that do not need to exist. Mm -hmm. uh, so that you have, let's, let's say you have a 13-point <clears throat> difference between uh, whites and blacks, 13 IQ point difference. If, and that's in the general population, if college admissions committees just simply didn't pay any attention to race and looked at test scores, but also looked at GPA in high school, looked at recommendations, looked at the whole package of things and made their decisions without paying any attention to race. It would work out so that the distribution of cognitive ability among the blacks who are admitted is just about the same as everybody else's. Okay. Similarly in the workplace, if employers hired that way, there wouldn't be any difference in, uh, in the, the ability of the people who were hired as who were white and black, but that's not the way it works. So that 
Some estimates are that in elite universities, uh, being black gives you uh, the equivalent of a 200 plus SAT point difference in, uh, in your chances of getting into a school. That's a big, that's a big thing. And which means then that schools have the same, roughly the same differences among the races as exist in the public at large. And the problem with this is that the low-performing students are concentrated among blacks. It's, it's inevitable. You know, if, if you are going to admit people with two different standards, I don't care if you're admitting people from Iowa versus people from South Dakota, but you use standard, different standards for admitting them, and one group has a much lower set of scores in the other group, you're going to get differences in classroom performance. And the problem is everybody knows that and nobody wants to talk about it. So, and, and, and think of it this way. Imagine that you are a college-age Tom Sowell and you are admitted and you are probably smarter than anybody else in the incoming class of any race and everybody asks themselves, I wonder if he's in affirmative action admission. Well, I saw that. You know, I, I was CEO of a, of a company involved in private equity and real estate investing and things like that. We hired lots and lots of MBAs, and somebody would say, this, this guy went to Princeton and Harvard Business School, fantastic, and it's even better, he's black. And that was fantastic, except I always asked the question, well, your question, okay, did he get there on merit, or did he get there because somebody gave him an extra 400 points on his test, and you didn't want to... Mm -hmm. How you get into that is a very difficult, difficult situation, delicate. Let me just check here. We're, you're watching the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with the great Charles Murray, and we're talking about the bell curve and differences in cognitive ability among different groups and, uh, and how tricky it is to talk about it. It's sort of the third rail, or it's the, uh, um, one of those topics that, that nobody seems to talk about honestly, but it needs to be talked about honestly. And it should be scary. That's the thing that is the most depressing. Uh, when I said earlier, this doesn't have to be a problem, I was not being a Pollyanna. I was, I was saying that it's only a problem because we have coupled an original ambition to be colorblind, which of course is racist speech, according to critical race theory. But we, we coupled that ideal of being colorblind in 1964 with Lyndon Johnson's call to uh, have equality of outcomes in 1965, shifting away from are we giving blacks a fair shake in, in admissions to colleges and employment to do we have enough blacks in our college in incoming class and enough blacks in our workforce where the moral responsibility to give a fair shake was submerged by the legal responsibility of people to adhere to quotas, de facto quotas, and de facto pressures from the government to, to equalize outcomes as much as possible. So when I bring this up, I've read The Bell Curve when it first came out, and I, it, it was controversial at the time, remains controversial, and, but I think the conclusions were accurate. And when I, when I talk with people about it of all, on all political sides, they're ex extremely uncomfortable with talking about this. They, yes. they look at it, they shift in their seat, and they say, let's go, you know, say, uh, who do you think is going to win the pennant? <laughs> <Yes. laughs> well, you know, I get uncomfortable 
uh, yeah. about it too, because because to do it is to have people assume you must be coming at this through a racist motivation. And so one of the problems in talking about it honestly is for me not to go overboard trying to prove I'm a nice guy and to, to stick to, to what we need to focus on. And I'll give you an example of the kind of distraction that is really hard to get around. A lot of the controversy about the bell curve, which is not about race, by the way, it had a chapter about race, but it's about the role of IQ in shaping America's class structure. Uh, but uh, the thing that caused all the controversy was one paragraph. We were talking in the chapter about race of the uh, relative roles of environment and genes in creating these differences. And, and Dick Hernstein, my co-author, and I reviewed the evidence for both of those hypotheses. And at the end of it said, uh, you know, the jury is out uh, on this. We don't really know. Probably both are implicated to some degree. We don't have any idea what the mix is. That one paragraph is translated into the bell curve tries to prove the genetic inferiority of blacks. Uh, I'm not exaggerating. It was that one paragraph that did it. In the case of facing reality, I'm already confronting people who, who want to focus obsessively on what is the cause of these differences. Now, I understand the urge to do that, because if you want to, to eliminate the differences or reduce them, you've got to understand the causes. That's fine. What I'm saying in this short book is it's, it's clarifying to focus on what is. I'll give you an example. Suppose that we had some plan for reducing the difference in violent crime rates between blacks and whites that we could be quite confident would work if we implemented it correctly. It'll take 10 years to do it, but it'll work. Fine. Let's go ahead and do it. It's expensive. Let's do it. That does not change the situation of a white police officer or a black police officer tomorrow who is going into a black neighborhood. The situation tomorrow, despite the fact we have a solution down the road, is just the same as it is today, and it will affect behavior. Similarly, it's, if we had ways to, to narrow the black-white difference in test scores down the road, that's great. Let's go after it. Mind you, we've been spending hundreds of billions of dollars trying to do that for the last 40 years. But, but never mind. If, if you have a way to do it, great. That does not change the implications of the existing difference right now in terms of the job performance of the blacks you've hired and the whites you've hired. When I read the book, gosh, 25 years ago, um, one takeaway was that intelligence is real and there's something that you call G. Mm -hmm. and that it is predictive of success in all sorts of different areas, um, that it's largely heritable. Mm -hmm. And it's not, you know, the nature versus uh, nurture. It's, it's largely nature. And but, but with a large component for, the, for, for uh, nurture as well, but... but largely. Largely. Well, I, largely. We can, but yeah. largely. Mm -hmm. So you're born with it. And the other thing is it doesn't, it doesn't change much in the course of your lifetime. And you can do all sorts of interventions, and you might temporarily raise somebody, but then that fades pretty quickly. So we're it, kind even of... If, yeah, you don't... Even so, if you so, get enough so we all, so we all hate yeah. this idea. Yeah. Now, I did pretty well on my tests, so I'm happy with it. But for, you know, most people, even me, I mean, there are people that scored higher, and I'm thinking, you know, well, wait a second, you know, they're going to be ahead of me forever. So the implication is, and it seems so... Uh, 
it makes you feisty. You want to say, look, you know, I don't want to have this number, and that's my number forever, and we can't change it. I, I, I think that's why there's such resistance. Yeah, I, and, and I want to say to them, you know, IQ is more predictive of job performance than any other single indicator, including job interviews and GPA and uh, recommendations. But that doesn't mean it explains everything. In fact, it only explains maybe 16, 20% of the variation, and which means there's a whole lot that besides IQ that goes into it. What are the other parts of that? Uh, the other things that, that exert an influence are personality characteristics such as conscientiousness. That's very helpful. And uh, there's, you know, things, people talk about emotional intelligence and they talk about grit. And well, we had the seven intelligences. That, yeah, that's Howard that. Gardner. And, yeah. and so the, the answer is does persistence help and tenacity and uh, simple hard work in terms of job performance and classroom performance? Yeah, it does. Well, you don't write it in, write about it in your book, but, the, but what troubles me is right now you see this whole thing of the whiteness and white culture. And there was an exhibit in the Smithsonian, the Black History Museum, and they had a white culture exhibit you know we were <laughs> were the ever exhibit then they had a they had a set of characteristics that were characteristic of whiteness white culture and they're basically the bourgeois virtues you know thrift forbearance um you know the kind of things that i think of as sort of uh, all these good things to be that in, in my life have helped me get ahead because i tried to practice that that was seen as a bad thing and so <laughs> how did they how did they indicate it was bad they sneered at it. Ah. They sneered at it. We're, you know, we're, you know, whites were rigid, and you know, and all the sort of things that were, may or may not be. Point was, they were stereotyping this whiteness, and that was what you didn't want to be. And I don't Got think it. there was an exact, there wasn't, a, there wasn't an opposite ideal, but this this little cultural framework. I mean, if there, if there are two realities, which would be cognitive ability and propensity for violent crime. I think there's a third force at work, which is what you got to buy into the success factors, the grit and all that sort of thing, the other 84% of things that aren't explained by, by IQ. Mm -hmm. uh, and and here you, I am lecturing Charles no, Murray. No, this, <laughs> no the, 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 and what's, what makes this most irritating, because you have a lot of whites uh, in, the, in the elites who are prostrating, prostrating themselves virtually to, uh, to proclaim their consciousness has been raised. They never realized they were racist, and now they do realize that, that without knowing that they're racist, they're very apologetic. I got news for you. Those same senior people in the media or in the IT industry who have announced all of this and they buy into the systemic racism, as they are hiring their next employees, <laughs> they are looking for, for IQ, conscientiousness, persistence, uh, forbearance. <laughs> they're looking for they're looking for all of the qualities that uh, that you just described that uh, that are being characterized as white. If I were a black person, I would find it very offensive to hear that forbearance and thrift are white virtues as opposed to things I'm proud of being. <laughs> and if I certainly would feel the same way if I were a Latino, that I've got I've got a I will not try to hide my feelings here, I think a lot of this rhetoric coming out of C CRT, critical race theory, is idiotic. Mm -hmm. um, the, 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 
the whole idea that the colorblind ideal is racist. I mean, there's an elaborate rationale for that is, I think, pernicious. The idea that, that blacks cannot, that they don't learn through analytical thinking the way that whites do, and that's a good thing, is insulting to a whole lot of blacks who think very clearly and articulately and perceptively in an analytical fashion. It's hard for me to believe that it has gotten the traction it's gotten. It's amazing to me that it has gotten the traction it's gotten. I got an explanation of that <clears throat> once, uh, or something that I think is a points to something. I was talking to the head of a large media organization who shall go otherwise unidentified, and he said, we're all terrified of our staffs. And by that he meant the 20-somethings who are quite junior in the pecking order, but who are very woke and who are very strident and exert a lot of influence within the organization. The, the, the most dramatic example of that was the way that James Bennett, editor of the uh, editorial page of the New York Times, was forced out for allowing uh, the, the, the op-ed by Senator Cotton, which was advocating a position that was held by millions and millions of smart, thoughtful Americans. James Bennett, in my, my opinion, one of the finest journalists in America, in the old-fashioned sense of, of journalists, of the idea that he could be pushed out by pressure from below, which mm -hmm. is apparently what happened, is pathetic. But so I think a lot of the reason that you see the parroting of the systemic racist line is not because there are no grown-ups in the room in a lot of the media organizations. I think it's because they're terrified of the people who are grown-ups. It, it's, I think the, the analogy with uh, Chairman Mao's Red Guards is so, is uncomfortably close. I guess Culture, we're, the, old enough, we're old enough to know what I'm referring to when well, I say Chairman Mao's Red Guards. Well, the, the people who would just terrorize. Uh, well, yeah, and, uh, I guess that was run by his uh, actress wife, and they were basically calling out people who had any education or anybody. And they demonized people by classes, not as individuals. Yeah, yeah. and that uh, was youngsters and, who, who were doing this. Uh, you're watching the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Charles Murray, and we're talking about the, uh, the, the frustrating nature of critical race theory and why uh, it seems to be so unreal in terms of the way the world really works. Uh, you know, you mentioned Mao. I, Sarah and I were, one of the things Sarah and I do when we're in the car, she reads out loud. Right now she's reading the... Modern Times by Paul Johnson. Uh -huh. And we came across the chapter on Lenin and the Soviet Union, or when he started the Soviet Union. And one of the first things that Lenin did, one of the, the, he had practically invented it in the 20th century, I think he did, was he took away the notion of individual guilt. He said, you're guilty because you're in this class or that class or this other class. And it doesn't matter who you are as an individual, it's a group guilt. And he committed most of the terrors, and then Mao, 50 years later, in, uh, in uh, China, does, does roughly the same thing. They call out classes. And the, America's ignorance of the, of the, of the, uh, that, that this is the way totalitarian proceeds. You put people, totalitarian proceeds, you put people into a group, single out the group, and then... Uh, 
And, and what, what we are seeing in its milder form here, and the, the reason I wrote the book, is not just that I think that critical race theory peddles an incorrect statement about America. We're not a systemically racist society. It also directly repudiates the American creed. Now, when I say American creed, once again, we old timers know what I'm talking about, but it is not a term that's been in use for decades. But what it meant was, as understood by the millions of people who were drawn to the America in the 19th and 20th centuries, was that you come to America and you will be judged for who you are, not by who your parents were, not by your religion, not by your race, color, or creed. That was, that was the ideal expressed in the Declaration of Independence. That was the ideal that Martin Luther King evoked in his famous speech at the Lincoln Memorial. In fact, that speech was basically saying to white America, it's time for you to make good on the promise of the American creed for blacks. Um, so if you say, well, America fell short of achieving that ideal, yeah, we did. We also made huge progress. Oh, yeah. A and, and if we <clears throat> shift to an understanding that we are systemically racist and therefore the power of the state is appropriately used to favor one group over another, it's all over. Or punish. And also punish. And the real danger here, I mean, it's okay, it's, that's a big enough danger all by itself, uh, even the way things are, and the way the Biden administration seems to have bought into the systemic racism rhetoric, and it has some programs that are specifically earmarked for blacks, but, but you don't give the same benefits to whites. Uh, that's kind of scary. But the really scary thing is if whites start to adopt identity politics. Uh, and and here's, here's the, the nightmare vision I have. You have the elites who have responded very, uh, you know, guiltily to the accusations of uh, the critical race theorists. But you have tens of millions of whites out there who are saying, wait a minute, I'm not a racist. I haven't behaved as a racist. I don't think as a racist. I'm respectful of my black colleagues at work and have friends among them. And you're telling me that uh, I'm saturated in privilege and, and I've been oppressing blacks and I'm responsible for all the problems of blacks. Give me a break. And, and at that, the, it's only a small, a small step from that to say, to hell with it. Um, if they can play identity politics, so can I. I think we're close to that. I think we're very close. I, I think, I think particularly with the critical race theory being taught in schools now and the way the parents are waking up to what's in the curriculum, going to school boards, getting absolute pushback from school boards, I think they're waking up to the fact that the, the school boards, the teachers unions, the curriculum developers, the uh, teachers colleges are all aligned against them. And they didn't really know that. Actually, the pandemic did us a favor, made the kids stay home so the parents could find out what they were learning. But, yeah. but, but we are getting very close to that tipping point. And, and so I want to say to all those, those folks, I understand why the temptation to say, you want to play that game? We can play that game. It, that's a, it's a very strong temptation. I also want you to understand that if whites start treating their identity as whites, as the framework for thinking about public policy, it's all over. The, what made America exceptional 
was our view of the equality of the individual, not in terms of outcomes, but the innate human dignity that people have and their opportunities. So anybody would ever be a critic of Charles Murray, people criticize The Bell Curve as a book, never read it. And I'd recommend, before you say anything about Charles Murray, you read this, because you, you start out with the American creed, and you also make a point that America in 1960 was 88% European white, and it was about 12% African black, and that was about it. There were very few Hispanics, very few Asians. They didn't even show up statistically. Now 60% of America is European white, and what is it, Hispanics are about... About 19%. Uh, 19%. Yeah. Blacks are about t still 12. Asians are now 8%. Yeah. Now, the thing I believe true, and I, I, I believe you believe, is that 40% that's not Amer European white, they think of themselves as Americans. And they're here yes. because of the American creed, almost entirely. And, you, and, and so that's, you know, so, so to get us into these categories where we all because we all pretty much think the same thing. You know, I want, I want people to start saying that what they think out loud because I am absolutely confident that uh, 80, 90 percent of African Americans still want the ideal of a colorblind society. They want a fair shake. Right. That's, that's what they're looking for. Right. And uh, that's what Latinos are looking for. <laughs> so if we have 80, 90 percent of Americans who still feel this way, about our traditional ideals, why are we letting ourselves be drowned out by the people who are saying that this is an irredeemably racist country? How do we message this? I had a, an epiphany <laughs> last year when a friend of mine said that this is such a serious situation that we're all obligated to do whatever we can. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is not business as usual. But you, you've got to pull out all the stops. And so you ask, what, what can we do? Well, I write books. <laughs> That's the only thing I know how to do. So for me, what, how, what could I do? I could write a book. What can an ordinary guy, uh, let's say he's an insurance agent in, in some city, what can he do? Um, he can start to be more open about this, this stuff about uh, racist, that colorblind is a racist idea, is just crazy. And I especially want him to do it if he's on the center left. If he's a person who's voted Democrat all his life, and he's a liberal, but he still believes in, in the American creed. And lots of people on the center left are like that. I especially want people who are black to start saying that out loud. Say it, say it not, not publicly in the newspapers, but just say it to, to fellow blacks. And same with the Latinos. To, to the extent we all come out of the closet and say we still love this country for what it stands for, we, that would be a step in the right direction. The real solution is not within our grasp now, but I think we have to think about how we would get there. We should once again change the laws so that it is illegal for any government agency to treat people differently according to their race. It's illegal to incentivize others to treat them differently according to their race, that, that the role of the government is to be impartial when it comes to race, to make every effort possible to maintain that impartiality, because it's only that impartiality that keeps us all safe. So end affirmative action. Root stock. Everything. Everything. Yeah. All of it. All of it. 
It's not politically feasible right now. But I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think I think there. I can. There's a there's a real there's a real sea change. There's a real changing of views that people say. Look, we, as I said at the outset, a lot of us are just so saddened, really, that all of a sudden, after you try for years and years to do the right thing, you want to bring people along, you know, year after year after year to find out. Well, that's not enough. Just the fact that you're white is is, is makes you, uh, you know, an enemy of the people. And, yeah. I, 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 want, I want people to think how much better the workplace would be if everybody knew that everybody who's being hired is being hired under the same standard. How wonderful that would be for whites who right now are not happy saying to themselves, I wonder if this is an affirmative action hire, how, how nice it would be if you were black and know that nobody was thinking that about you and know that the reason nobody's thinking about you is that you got in through exactly the same standards that everybody else here was hired. Was it in your book, or did Douglas Murray put it in his book, about the percentage of these classes of people that are employees of, of Google? Mm -hmm. Take a guess. A lot of Asians. A lot of Asians. <laughs> it's about 40% it's about it's Asian or something like that. Like one percent black, one percent Hispanic. Yep. It, they, it's, yep. uh, it looks like it looks like Hong Kong. <laughs> what, what, one of the things that is uh, going to be interesting over the next decade, as as Asians go from six or eight percent of the population to ten, twelve, fourteen percent of the population, is that given the incredible productivity they bring to the workplace and so forth, there's going to be major changes. I think for the better but in the, the, the way that uh, elite industries are run. Well, and they also have the cultural values. They've they got the also, IQ, they but they've got, they've got the, what Europeans call bourgeois virtues, but they've got that in space. Uh, yeah, uh, believe me. Uh, I have seen, I've witnessed it firsthand how the Asian culture works, and uh, the, the incentives for the children to do well in school that Asian parents impose are multiples of the pressures that white parents bring to bear on, on that. That's just, that's just a statement of fact. Well, circling back to just staying with this idea of ending affirmative action and, and treating us as, uh, as Americans who believe in the American creed and want to, and want to bring people in who support uh -huh. that, uh, your, 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 your notion about these kids that because of the affirmative action criteria get into colleges, it really hurts them. I mean, you you end up getting into a very a top school, and all of a sudden you find yourself at the very bottom of the class. Yeah, this is one of these things that 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 is hard to talk about again because oh, here's this white guy saying oh, affirmative action hurts blacks. Isn't that patronizing? Well, I'll tell you something. If you're seeing an extremely talented black kid who wants to be an engineer and could be a terrific engineer if he went to Iowa State, which is a very good engineering school, by the way. But if you send that, that kid to MIT with the credentials that would get him into Iowa State, that doesn't make him any less smart. It means that he, is a, he may be in the top five percentiles of ability in the things that go into being an engineer. His white and Asian classmates are in the top tenth of the top percentile, and that makes a difference. It, and if I would love to see colleges release, the elite colleges release the dropout rates for their black and Latino students. 
I think it would be they shocking. They don't. It's all. It it's would be all... shocking to be how many because these are kids who are really, really smart kids. They may have gotten in because of affirmative action, but in an absolute sense, they're really smart. But they're thrown into a cauldron that makes them feel stupid, and they a lot of them give up and drop out. But don't look for colleges to publish those statistics anytime soon because they don't want to admit to what they're doing. Well, I don't know whether we're veering off topic or maybe amplifying the topic, but the thing I get offended by is that you, because you're white, and I'm because I'm white, Murray, I assume you're Scot Scottish somewhere Scots -Irish. back there. I'm Scots-Irish. We're both Scots-Irish. We're not authorized to talk about these issues because we don't have the proper identity. And, you know, I went to a high school that was 75% black. I could claim I was a minority. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And so I'm, 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 you know, we did, and this was pre, uh, this was, this was, this was pre Stokely Carmichael. This was, I graduated in 67, so we still had a lot of, we didn't really see race that much. Mm -hmm. At least I didn't. I don't think they did much either. What do you say to people that we're not, you know, we're not allowed to talk about these things because we don't have the ethnic identity to, to experience what they've experienced? Now, in your case, uh, you you have credentials I don't have because I went to a high school that was virtually all white. I think I think that the only thing you can do is not try to pretend that you deeply empathize with blacks if you're a Scots Irish like us. <laughs> I think I think you stick to you stick to you be as dispassionate as possible, and also in what appropriately sympathetic. When you say things happening uh, to black kids that if they happen to your kids, you would get very angry about. That's one thing we can do. Another thing is, <laughs> we're Scots-Irish, right? You know what Scots-Irish are famous for? Being drunk and violent. Whiskey, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, my, my thought was immediately, so, so whiskey. You're, 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 you're proud of your Scots-Irish ancestry. I am. <laughs> I'm proud of mine. But the fact is, there's a lot of... Drunkenness and violence. In no, our, but in our it's history. also look. Remember the Highlands clearance. Oh uh, yeah, in Scotland. Yeah. I mean, they, the 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 Brits or the Lords basically said, "Look, we'd rather have sheep than people," and so the they cleared all the Scots off the Highlands. That's why we ended up in the Appalachians. Well, we were talking about violent crime and black-white differences in violent crime. What do you think the differences were between the Scots Irish and the Quakers? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's, you know, we are all God's children, and and uh, and none of us are perfect. And this this business of trying to rank races in terms of their merit as human beings by any given trait is just silly. And I guess of all the irritating aspects of the reaction to the bell curve. The one was that said this is talking about superiority of whites, inferiority of blacks. If there's anything that that book makes clear is we are complicated bundles of traits. And the fact is I wouldn't trade the traits of Scots-Irish that aren't that admirable uh, because they're part of, of my heritage and who I am and I'm proud of them. That is true of every race. It's true of men thinking about being males. It's true of women about being females. Uh, the idea that we are rank ordered from superior to inferior is not just morally wrong, it is empirically stupid. I think that's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to sum it up. But you're, you know, the book, you've got, you've got a, 
you know, the solution that's not within our grasp is in affirmative action. That's the ideal. Just yeah, get rid yeah. of all the different categories. But the one that is within our grasp, as I think you just summarized, is where we talk about the idea of restoring the American creed. Yeah, and that we, 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 we express openly and proudly that America's ideal is to take every person as they come. And that it is wrong to label people according to any of their identities. And that identity politics is, in a sense, I hate to use the word evil because it's too melodramatic, but if you love what America is supposed to stand for, it's evil. Yeah. Charles Murray, thank you. Always a good Hope talk. we're going to get you back. You. I want to get you back again to talk about the stack of books here and how you progressed. And um, there's a lot in here, and uh, there's a lot in you. And uh, love to do it. Okay, great. We'll have you back soon. Thank you. You've been watching the Bill Walton Show here with Charles Murray, and uh, very interesting book, Facing Reality, which I highly recommend everybody look through. There's a lot of wisdom in this, and uh, you'll uh, you'll learn a lot. So anyway, thanks for joining us and uh, I'll see you soon. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, We'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.